Chapter 18, Part 1 from the sermon series, The Gospel of John, spoken by Pastor Peter on. You really learn a lot about somebody when they're actually in a crisis situation. You ever notice that? That when you go through a crisis situation, no matter how hard you try maybe not to, our true nature, our true self usually comes out to the forefront. And it happens all the time. And sometimes, unfortunately, we encounter the bad nature of people. And a lot of times we can hide it and, and sort of hide it within ourselves and not display it uh, when we're doing good. But when we're not doing well, a lot of times, when we've hit a crisis, a lot of times, our true selves often comes to surface. And we see that happening. You see that happening maybe in your homes as you, as you saw your parents, you know, sort of do th good things. But whenever they, they're faced with a crisis, you see them change completely and it becomes a very destructive kind of behavior. You see that sometimes happening at your work, when you're at, at your job, and you see that with your boss. Everything is good when everything's going well, but when your company is struggling, when your boss is struggling, you are put on edge because their true nature, their true self just kind of comes to surface. We see that happening with certain friends that we might be friends with, that they're great friends, but when they face a crisis, they're anything but a great friend. You learn a lot about someone when they go through a crisis situation. I was floored years ago. We were trying to get Pastor David Hosang to come from L.A. to move from Southern California to New Jersey. Very hard proposition. But we knew he was a godly man. And so he and Betty came about 10 years ago to sort of see if God was calling them to come to New Jersey. And so, yeah, there's a picture of David over there. And while we were at staff meeting, uh, we wanted David and Betty to do some teaching and things like that. But Betty wasn't feeling good. She started to feel really dizzy. And she went over to the couch in our main area of our office. She said, I just got to lay down. And as she did that, some of you know, because I've shared this story before, years ago, uh, she didn't look good. And I just kind of sensed that we need to take her to the hospital. So I asked Shirley and I asked Clayton. And there were, uh, Clayton was here on first service. It was really cool to see him. He's, he's been in Chicago. But I asked him to take Betty to the hospital with David, to the ER. And I said, I'll finish the staff meeting, and then I'll go and I'll visit and see what's going on. And so I finished the staff meeting, took about an extra hour, and I got in my car, and it was snowing really bad that day. I'll never forget it. And I get to Englewood Hospital. I go into the ER, and I say to the nurse, I'm here for Betty Hosang. And the nurse looks at me, and she goes, oh. She goes, she's not doing well. I said, what do you mean? And the nurse said that she's had a massive heart attack. In fact, her heart stopped a few times, and they actually had to use a defibrillator to actually resuscitate her. And I said, is she going to be okay? And this is what the nurse said to me. She said, I don't think so. And I'm thinking, no, man, this is terrible. Like, I cannot believe that potentially Betty might die while they're here trying to discern if they should move from California to New Jersey. I mean, you talk about, like, the worst. I mean, if you don't know, like, that's a sign, isn't it? Like, you should not come to New Jersey. And so I'm going into the waiting room. I'm walking over to the waiting room anticipating that David is going to be beside himself. And I was so grateful that Shirley was with him. Because you know how Shirley, the one who moderated, she's so empathetic. I knew that Shirley was going to love on him, cry with him, probably have an arm around him and all that stuff. And so as I opened the door, waiting to see David in the state where he is just an emotional wreck, David basically had that exact smile on that picture on his face, sitting down, talking with Shirley. I have no idea what they were talking about, but he was really enjoying the conversation. And I'm just looking at him, I'm like, something's off here about this guy. And I said to him, I said, hey, your wife might die today. Aren't you worried that she might die? 
And he looks at me and he goes, of course I'm worried. And then he does this. He goes, it's in God's hands. And I just look at him. I'm like, you are from another world. I, do, I can never identify with you and your kind of faith. <laughs> Folks, that's a different level of trust. I learned that this man trusts in God. And I learned that he has a peace that this world cannot understand, a peace that this world cannot give. I learned a lot about David that day in that crisis situation. You and I learn a lot about people when they're faced with a crisis. And today we're going to learn a lot about Jesus. We're actually going to learn about what kind of God do we find in Jesus during the greatest crisis of his life, which is his imminent death. Here it comes. It's the beginning now. Judas is coming with the guards, and they're there to arrest him. His crisis begins. And in this crisis, he's going to teach us what kind of God he really is. And I hope that this will help you maybe dispel some of these questions you have of God. Because for some of you here, you might actually be struggling with your idea of who God might be in your life today. Let's learn a lot about who God is through this crisis that Jesus faces. So turn with me to John chapter 18. We're going to look at the first 14 verses. John 18 verses 1 through 14. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Now just try to picture yourself as Jesus in this story. You know you're going to die. You know Judas is coming for you with the guards. You know all of this. You know that you're going to be crucified on the cross. Let's enter into this story now. After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. Judas the betrayer knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. Now just stop for just a second. If you knew you were going to die, if you knew that Judas was going to come with his soldiers to arrest you, would you still go to the same place where it would be easy for Judas to find you when you know you're going to die? I don't know if I was Jesus, I might just be like, hey, disciples, I found a new garden. I found a nice garden that we can go to. It's even better. It's got much more greenery. Let's go to that garden today, all right? I probably would do that to make it a little bit more difficult for Judas to find me. But Jesus doesn't do that. He wants to make sure that Judas is able to find him. That's crazy when you think about that. Blows me away when you think about Jesus' mindset here when he's faced with death. Look at verse 3. The leading priests and the Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for, he asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he said Jesus. Judas, was, who betrayed him, was standing with them. As Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Once more, they, he asked them, who are you looking for? And again, they replied, Jesus the Nazarene. I told you that I am he. Jesus said, and since I am the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? So the soldiers, their commanding officers and the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up. First they took him to Annas since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest at the time. Caiaphas was the one who had told the other Jewish leaders, it's better that one man should die for all the people. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. And so, Lord, we come to you and we just ask you to just speak to us through this text, Lord. Um, God, I pray for anyone here that struggles to believe that you are God. I pray that today that you would show them that you are. 
And so I pray that this text would help all of us to be reminded of the kind of God that we serve. So I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, I pray, would indeed be pleasing unto you. And it's in your name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. 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 What kind of God do we find in Jesus? Here's the first God that we find in Jesus. We find that Jesus in the story is the all-powerful God. That Jesus is the all-powerful God. When he's faced with this crisis, we learn that Jesus is the all-powerful God. Look at verse 1. Verse 1, after saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. Judas the betrayer knew this place because Jesus had often gone through there with his disciples. The leading priests and the Pharisees had given Judas a contingent, underline that word contingent, of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Okay? Now when you think about this, a contingent of soldiers here, I want you to know in your translations, it might say a cohort. Okay, a cohort of soldiers is anywhere between 200 to 600 soldiers. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of soldiers. And they're fully armed. They're ready to go to battle against Jesus, who's not trying to rage war. Jesus is not armed. He's with his 11 disciples. Yeah, Peter's got a sword. But Jesus is not here to fight them. Why are they coming to Jesus with such a show of force to arrest one man, 200 to 600 soldiers? Why would they do that? Because they know his power. They've heard of his power. They've heard of the rumor that this Jesus has healed people. And I'm sure Judas has said, listen, I lived with the dude for three years. The guy's got power. He raises people from the dead. He heals the sick. He does some crazy things. We need a lot of soldiers, and they need to be heavily armed. And so they go to him, 200 to 600 soldiers, ready to arrest Jesus Christ, acknowledging that this is not going to be easy because he's powerful. But nothing prepared them what they were going to encounter. Nothing prepared these soldiers and Judas for, what the, for the power in which they were going to encounter. Turn with me to verse 4. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for, he asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. As Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. You see, when Jesus says, I am he, he's declaring that he's God. He says, I am God. And when he says this, the soldiers, including Judas, they fall down. Why? Because Jesus is God. He's the all-powerful God. And because he's the all-powerful God, they fall prostrate in front of Jesus because of his majesty and his power. Amen? Amen. They knew he was powerful. They encountered it, but they were never in a million years would have thought that he possessed that kind of power. He's God. Do you believe your God is the all-powerful God? Do you believe that your Jesus is the all-powerful God? In that moment of crisis, Jesus reveals the power in which he possesses. Psalms 27, 2 says this, When evil people come to devour me, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Jesus is the all-powerful God. Jesus is declaring to Judas and to these Jewish leaders and these soldiers, they're saying, yeah, your schemes are evil. Yes, they're powerful. You're coming with a show of force. But you know what? My power is much greater than yours. He's staring evil in the eye and he's saying, there's nothing that your power can do. And the only reason why at the end of the day that they're able to arrest Jesus Christ and take him away, the only reason, and the soldiers knew it without a shadow of a doubt, the only reason why they were able to arrest Jesus is because he gave them permission to do so. That's it. 
Our God is the all-powerful God. Listen, our world loves to attribute power to people. We are power hungry, and we also love, and we love to revere people who possess some kind of power. We look at people with wealth, with exorbitant amount of wealth, people like Jeff Bezos, people like Elon Musk, Bill Gates, people like that, and we say these guys are powerful, and yet they are because they're wealthy, they're billionaires, but guess what? Their power pales in comparison to the power of Jesus Christ. We look at celebrities and athletes and we call them and we attribute power to them because of the kind of influence that they have on social media. You guys like that Super Bowl last Sunday? It was good, wasn't it? Five quarters of football. Do you guys know, I don't know if you know this, but it was the highest rated, most watched live broadcast, not just in the Super Bowl, but in U.S. history. There was no other television event Number two was when we landed Neil Armstrong on the moon. That was number two. Number one was the Super Bowl. Why? Because football had grown in popularity so much in just one year? No. I hate to admit it. It's because of those Swifties. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm reading all those newspaper articles this week, and they're saying it's because of Taylor Swift. Like tens and millions of her followers decided to tune into the Super Bowl, not because they're interested in the game, but they just want to see Taylor Swift's face. Man, that girl's got some power. What she's able to do in culture is pretty amazing because of her popularity. But I'm telling you, and you know this, and I hope you do, her power pales in comparison to the power of Jesus Christ. We look at countries like the United States and Russia. We look at our military, and we say, wow, we're powerful. Countries fear us because of the power that we wield with our military. But I'm here to tell you right now, it pales in comparison to the very power of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that your God is powerful today? You see, in theory, I think we can say yes to that. But you don't believe it here. A lot of you don't ever, you don't believe in the power of God because you haven't really encountered the very power of God. You know the reason why we struggle to encounter the power of God when we believe it with our hearts? Because once you believe in your heart that our God is all-powerful, that Jesus Christ is all-powerful, I am telling you right now, you can bow down to him. You would surrender your life to him. You would say, God, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, I'll do it. But what's the issue for a lot of us? You know what it is? You don't embrace mystery in your life. You don't embrace the element of allowing God to surprise you and wow you for a moment. You want to know everything before you take a step, before God is calling you to do certain things with your life. There is a degree of certainty that you want. But if you live like that, that's not faith. Your life is not faith-driven. And for a lot of us, because we kind of want to live our life where we don't want to embrace the mystery, what ends up happening is that we can't encounter this all power for God because of that. And what you need to realize that when you look at the Bible, there's just such a litany of characters in the Bible. I can go on and on and on about these characters where they've had to embrace the mystery of God. And when they were able to embrace it, guess what? They encountered the all power for God. And it's a beautiful thing. What about Sarah and Abraham? Remember that story? Sarah was 90 years old, Abraham was about 100 years old, and an angel appears before them. And the angel says, you're going to finally have a biological son. Sarah's in the kitchen just minding her own business, getting some food prepared. And what does she do when she hears that? She laughs. She goes, ha, you wish. I mean, it's been probably 30 years since I've hit menopause. Right? Abraham is like, you know, there's no Viagra back then. He's like, I can't. This is going to be impossible. Right? And what do they do at the end? They trust. 
They embrace the mystery of that crazy, crazy prophecy. And what does God do in a year? He gives them their first son, Isaac. And you know what that name means in Hebrew? The one who laughs. The one who laughs. And they encounter that miracle. All right? What about Moses? Moses was 85 years old. He was old. He was a fugitive, wanted for murder in Egypt. And at that age, God says, hey, listen, Moses, I need you to go to Egypt. I need you to go to Pharaoh. I need you to tell him you must let my people go. Moses is like, I can't do that. Like, I'm wanted for murder, and also I'm old now, God. Like, hey, listen, God, I want you to know I have a speech impediment. I'm not going to be able to do that. God said, trust in me. I'll send you Aaron. Don't worry about it. And they go together, and what happens? They encounter God's power. Moses could have died. Moses probably struggled with the reality of what might happen to him. But he goes, and Pharaoh lets his people go, and they run, and they go towards the promised land. What happens when they get to the Red Sea? Because Pharaoh's chasing after them because he has a change of heart. What happens there? As he embraces the ambiguity of God, God parts the Red Sea so that the people of God can actually go. They encounter his power, and they go through the Red Sea, and eventually they get into the wilderness, and they run out of food, and God rains down manna from heaven. They encounter the power of God. What about Gideon had an army of 30,000 men ready to go to war against an army of 135,000, right? God says, hey, your army is too big. You got to downsize it at 300. Could you just imagine what Gideon was thinking? We're not going to have a chance. Those odds are impossible, right? It was already 5 to 1. Now these odds are like 50 to 1. They're crazy. But what does he do? He embraces the mystery of it, and God gives him victory. God chooses 12 groups of misfits, and one went rogue and betrays him. These 12 groups of, mis- these 12 groups of men who are these the misfits of misfits, and they trust in him eventually, and they start the greatest movement this, ever, this world has ever known, which is the church. Folks, if you want to encounter the power of God, you have to embrace the mystery of God. You've got to let God wow you and, wo- and, and, and blow you away once in a while, put you in a state of awe, but he's not going to do that if you don't embrace the mystery. It's not your job to know the outcome. Your job is to trust in a God and have peace because you trust in him. And that's exactly what happened with David when he was in that hospital room because as I was talking with him, he said, Peter, I am worried, but look, look, I did all I could do. I called Betty's family, I called my family, and I just told them to pray. So it's in God's hands now. That's it. He trusted in the ambiguity of that. And what happened? He, we all encountered the very power of God because even the medical professional said that she wasn't going to make it, but she does. You and I will encounter the power of God when you embrace the mystery of God. Jesus is the all-powerful God. Will you bow down and worship him today? These soldiers, they did it because of his majesty and his power. And the challenge is, will you do it? Jesus reveals he's the all-powerful God in this crisis situation. The second thing he reveals about the kind of God he is, he reveals that he's an all-protective God. He's a God who protects. Look at verse 7. Once more he asked them, who are you looking for? And again they replied, Jesus the Nazarene. Verse 8, I told you that I'm he, Jesus said, and since I am the one you want, I, I let these others go. Let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you have given to me. Jesus doesn't use his power to protect himself. Understand that for just a second. Jesus doesn't use his power to protect himself. He uses his power to protect the people in which he loves. He's in this crisis situation. They're not trying to kill the disciples. They're trying to kill him. He doesn't use it for himself. He uses it to protect his people. 
Let that comfort you for a moment. That Jesus, the all-powerful God, will come and protect you. And what that simply means is this. There's nothing in this world, honestly, there is nothing in this world, there is no one in this world that can destroy you because you and I have the protection of God. Amen? I'm going to say that one more time. Just let it sink in for just a moment. There is no person in this world, there is no circumstances in this world could ever destroy you fully because you and I have the protection of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. That is what we have. And you have to know that. Now, I know some of you think, but Peter, I don't want to encounter God's protection. I've prayed for the protection of God, and he has not answered it. I've prayed that God would protect my a father or a mother who is dying of cancer, and God didn't answer that. He didn't protect them because they're no longer with me anymore, Peter. So I've been disappointed because I have not encountered God's protection. I wish I could just stand up here and just answer those questions, but I can't because it's so complex. There's so many layers to some of the struggles that we have and some of the things that you might have concluded where maybe God or Jesus is not protective to you. But what I want you to know is this, that God's protection doesn't come when he answers your prayer requests. It doesn't come that way. Jesus' protection comes to you. It's deeply embedded in his ability to have compassion for you and for me. That's where his protection comes. And so the protection that you and I get from God isn't him necessarily answering certain prayers where he'll protect you from harm. The protection that we get is his compassion for you and for me. And we find that Jesus has compassion for his disciples, but he also has compassion for his enemies. Because what does he do with Malchus? When Peter takes out his sword and he cuts the ear of Malchus, what does he do? Jesus has compassion and he protects Malchus and he says, Peter, put away your sword. I'm not here to fight. Put it away. Jesus even protects his enemy who's trying to kill him. That's the kind of compassion he has. God's protection is found in his ability to have compassion for you and for me. So what does that mean then? What does his compassion look like? You know what it looks like? It's his presence. It's his presence. God's protection, whether you like this or not, and I'm telling you, it's the greatest thing. More so than him answering certain prayer requests so that you can feel safe. I'm telling you right now, God promises that his protection is with you. And that promises that his presence will be ever with you during those ups and down moments of your life. That presence is what you and I need in our life because when we have the presence of God, when you and I have the presence of God in our life, and we can grapple literally with anything that life throws at us because we have Jesus with us. He's our all-compassionate God. He's our protector. Amen? He's our protector, Metro. I mean, think about this. Jesus prayed the cup of suffering would pass from him at Gethsemane. God said, no, I can't do that for you. Jesus prayed for protection. He had an idea of, can I not do this? God said, no. He said, I'm going to protect you in a way that's going to be far greater. Because Jesus, you're just thinking about it in a temporal way. But if you hold on to me, I will be there with you to the very end. And you're going to see again when you give your life and you are raised from the dead in three days, you will sit at my right hand. I'll be present with you. And that's why you read John's gospel and it's that He details so much that Jesus is so bold because God is ever-present with him. I want you to know that Jesus is ever-present with you. What that means for you and I, it's good news because the protection that he gives to you is his protection so that you don't get jaded by life. You don't get jaded by the evils in the world. You don't get jaded by the things that will hurt you in your life. What it does and offers you is that because God is present with you, God can breathe life in those things that often will kill and destroy and lose confidence that people might have because of those things that they go through. 
He'll breathe life in those things that look like death to you. He can actually do that. That what you go through, some of you, when we go through hardships, we think that it's like the end. That we don't have any more left in life, that it's going to destroy us completely. No, it's not the end. And even if you and I die, even if we die, it's not the end. It's the beginning of an eternity with God. Amen? He's ever present with us. He's never going to leave us nor forsake us. And so you don't have to worry about that. He'll be there with you every step in the way. And the promise is simply this. It's found in Romans 3, 3 to 5. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Paul knows that when you and I suffer because God's present, because his protection is over us, it's going to build perseverance, character, and hope. And even in our darkest moments in our life, God will protect us. He will be ever-present with us because he loves us and he's so compassionate about us. Our God is our protector. And because Jesus is your protector, will you trust in him today? Will you trust in him for your life? in every area of your life, no matter what you might be going through, will you trust in him because he's your protector? The last thing that we learn in this story, in this crisis situation of Jesus, is that Jesus is our all-suffering God. He is the suffering God, all right? Verse 10. Then Simon Peter drew his sword and slashed off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given to me? Jesus chose to drink of the cup of suffering for our behalf. Yes, the Father had called him to do it. He was obeying the Father. But I want you to know, and I want this to sink in for just a moment, Jesus decided to choose to drink that cup of suffering because he loves you and he loves me. And that's why he he is our suffering God. That's why he is truly our suffering God. Before you and I get angry at Jesus for not answering a prayer request, let that sink in for just a moment. That because you are so lovable in God's eyes. I don't know about you, but I grew up my whole life struggling to believe that I'm truly lovable. When you grow up in a physically abusive home, it does a number on your mind. You don't think you're that lovable. You start to live your life thinking that you're not that lovable. And then when people start making fun of you for being Korean in an all-white school, you start to believe you're less lovable. I struggle with that so much of my life. Right? And maybe you've struggled with it too. But I want you to know what this passage teaches us is that our God, our Lord, was willing to suffer for you because you and I are so lovable to him. That you are lovable. And because of that, Jesus was willing to drink this cup of suffering to die for you and for me so that sin will no longer separate us from God. Because our sinful nature, our sins that you and I commit, is the barrier that prevents us from getting close with God. It really is. And because you and I could never do anything to overcome it, and I wish I could. I wish I could overcome my sinful nature. I don't know about you. Anyone want to overcome their sinful nature? Any of you ever get to a place where you say, I wish I didn't struggle with this sin. I wish I had within my own ability to overcome my sinful nature, but I don't. I fail miserably on the regular, guys. The only person that can help me with this is Jesus Christ. 
He can help me to hopefully live a life where I don't sin, but he knows I'm going to sin. And so what does he do? Because he drank that cup of suffering, because he died for me on the cross and resurrected from the dead, my sins can be forgiven. And so when I repent, repentance is a beautiful practice in which God has given to us. Because when we repent, it's not about God just forgiving us of our sins, although that's important. But repentance means that you can turn. And you can enter God's kingdom again, and you can be reminded that you're a child of the kingdom. That's the power of repentance. And why did Jesus drink that cup of suffering? To remove the barrier so that you and I would never, ever doubt that we are a child of the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. He's the suffering God. He's the suffering God. And that's the power that you and I need to know. No more barriers. Between Jesus, between God and us anymore. There is nothing you can do to separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing. Because he's our suffering God. Because he's our suffering God. And the other cool, really amazing thing about this reality is this. Not only has he removed the barriers, but God now truly understands the plight of our hardships and our suffering in our life. There is no other God because Jesus is the only God who ever suffered. He understands what you're going through in your life. He understands what I'm going through in my life. And I don't know about you, but that offers me so much comfort. It really does. We focus a lot on the physical suffering of Jesus Christ, and of course he physically suffered tremendously for us on the cross. And that's huge. So whatever kind of physical suffering you might be going through today, Jesus understands it because he's gone through the worst. But what I also want to draw your attention to is that Jesus understands your emotional suffering the things that you've gone through in your life because Jesus has gone through it all. Judas, in which the man in which he loved and poured into for over three years, betrays him. Have you ever been betrayed by somebody you love? Have you ever been betrayed by a family member or a spouse or a best friend that just betrays you? Have you experienced that? I mean, it's painful in every way. Jesus understands that because he's been through it. Our God is a suffering God, and so he understands it. Think about the people in which you came to minister to. Jesus entered into human history to minister to the people of God, all of them. And just think about this for a second. Now, we'll see this in the weeks to come. He's standing trial, and the religious leaders, the most spiritual people who are supposed to love God are the ones that want him to die. And as he's standing on trial, as he's with the crowd, and Pilate is like, who do you want me to let go, and who do you want me to crucify on the cross? Right, who? Who? And everyone is yelling, we want Jesus to die, crucify him. Can you imagine that kind of rejection that Jesus experienced? And the worst part of it is that when he was on that cross, thriving in agony and pain, who do you depend upon when you go through the hardest moments in your life, the people that love you the most? The 11 abandoned him. They're nowhere to be seen. Jesus is on that cross, thriving in agony and pain all alone. He needed his disciples. He trained them for that day to be there for him on the day he needed them the most, and they were not there. Can you imagine how alone he must have felt? And that's why he says in Hebrew, and this is the amazing thing about this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Our Lord is the suffering God, and because he is, He understands the depth of whatever you might be going through, emotional or physical, because he's been through it and been through it far worse than you and I could ever go through. And because of that, will you trust in him? Will you say yes? Will you say, God, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, I'll do it. 
Our God is powerful. Our God is protective. Our God is the all-suffering God. And if you believe in that with your heart, not just with your minds, no more games. Stop just trying to do this Christianity. Stop trying to put God in a box. But let him be God in you for your life. Will you surrender like these soldiers? Would you fall down and surrender yourself to the majesty and the power of God, to his protection, and to his ability to love you and understand what you might be going through because he suffered for you and for me? So on April 5th, we're going to be celebrating our 20th anniversary as a church. It's going to be on a Friday night. We're going to be, we rented out Biagio's. And I want to encourage all of you to come be a part of this. Um, all of you, please, come be a part of it. We have tickets. They're being sold at the table today. I hope. I want to personally invite you to come. It would mean a lot to me, honestly. It would mean the world to me if you were there. Uh, because we're not just going to have fun and celebrate, but we're going to remember what God has done in our church over the past 20 years. And uh, we're working on a short little film. It's called 20 Years of Embracing Weakness. And, and in order for me to shoot this thing, uh, we hired a company to help us with it. Um, we had to go to California. <clears throat> and so in January, I was in California in L.A. because the vision of Metro came to me when I was in Fuller Theological Seminary, when I was my, my first year at school. And, uh, and so I went there, and, you know, the guy's recording me, and I'm just kind of talking, walking around. I, just, I came to the realization that when I was like 26, 27, I was crazy. I mean, I cannot believe I trusted in God. I had zero ministry experience, and God gave me the vision for this church. And I remember just like I had more faith in me not doing this, not being able to accomplish this, than me actually doing it. And I remember I struggled with that. I said, are you sure you want me to do this, God? Are you sure you want me to plant this church? I mean, I have no ministry experience. I'm a second career pastor. I worked in the marketplace. I tried to convince God to say, okay, then don't do it, right? But God kept giving me this vision. It was this burden that he gave to me. And I just trusted in him. I just decided to do it. And, you know, it went to the point where David was my mentor and he was my boss at the time, David Hosang. And I said, hey, David, could you pray and make sure I'm not making a mistake here? Because I don't want to make a mistake. And he said, no, God is calling you to do this, right? I went, to my, I went to my denomination, and they had this assessment center, and they assessed me for five days with Jenny to make sure. And I just wanted to make sure that I'm called to do this. And they said, no, you're, you're called to do this. And so I finally go and I do this, and I think about where we've come in 20 years. My, my, my. An opportunity for me to just to kind of reflect upon it. Like, I had this crazy faith. I just embraced it in the mystery of God. I didn't know this was going to happen. And when you look at what's going on in our church today, really, we, we, I've, I've encountered, and I know people who've been with us from day one and maybe for over 10 years, they've encountered the very power of God in this church over the past 20 years. Do you know that being a multi-ethnic church, do you know that less than 10% of churches in America are actually multi-ethnic? Because you know how much our culture divides us rather than unites us? Because if truth being told, not just in the United States, but all over the world, most Christians allow culture to supersede Jesus. And so 20 years ago, when God gave me this vision, we had to be a place where we had to say, well, we're going to let Christ supersede culture. And that's not easy to do because it required a lot for us to do as a church. But during that time, God was there, man. He protected me. There were, I wouldn't be in ministry today if it wasn't for God's protection, if I didn't encounter his presence through all the ups and downs of what church happened. And some of this was because of my own dysfunction, my own emotional unhealthiness that I caused for my wife and my children and things like that and the church. 
But God's presence was here, and he guided me all the way through it. And I still remember the time when our staff members and our elders who were black were going to black churches to mourn and grieve when Trayvon Martin got shot. I remember just going, I'm saying, why are you going to a black church? Like, why can't you do this here? And they just said, I don't think Metro is a place where we can actually grieve when an unarmed black man dies. And they just sat and they explained the whole thing to me. And I just said, you know what? If Christ supersedes culture, then we really have to take seriously of loving our neighbor as ourselves, right? Living out the great commandment. And we have to. And we've done that and we've done that to the best of our abilities. And we've gone through some real hardships because of that. We've lost some people and things like that. But we're here at 20 years now and we're better for it today. But it wasn't easy. It was hard, man. It was so hard. But, you know, every, every time in those moments, I knew that God's protection, his presence was here. And I knew that he always understood because he's been through much worse. So there's nothing that I could ever go through, nothing that our leaders could ever go through that Jesus cannot understand. There's no cross that we think we could bear that Jesus cannot understand. He understands everything. And so I was at Fuller. I was at the prayer garden just praying. And God said this to me. He said, man, you're 50 now. You're getting old. Would you do it again at 50? Would you trust in the all-powerful God? Would you trust in the God who can protect you? Would you trust in this God who has suffered and understands the depths of whatever you might be going through that I may call you to? Will you do it? Will you do it? And he, this guy recorded me just kind of talking about it. And I said, you know, it's, it's, it's a, I'm going to be honest, it's a struggle. But if I don't say yes to that, if we don't say yes to that, then your God is never going to be the true God in your life. And at that prayer garden, I said, God, yes, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, I will do it. Because I trust in you. Now, I don't know where God is, what God might be doing in your life or what God has done in your life in the past, but I am telling you this, it's not over. God is not done with you. Even if you said no in the past, He's not done with you because the timing is right just now, right here where you are today. Will you believe that your God is powerful? Will you embrace the mystery of God so you can encounter his powerful, his power in an amazing way? Will you believe and will you trust that he's the protective God, that because of his compassion, he will be present with you every step of the way? Will you believe that in your heart? And no matter what you go through, Will you know that you are so lovable to God that he sent Jesus Christ to die for you because you're so lovable and God wants to be in a relationship with you. And no matter what you and I go through in our lives, no matter how difficult it might be, physically, emotionally, spiritually, our God understands it all because he's been through it. And will that give you, in that solidarity, give you the, the courage and the hope and the faith to say, yes, I will bow down to you, I will trust in you, and I will say yes to you. That's your challenge today. Because Jesus has revealed the kind of God he is. But will you let him be that God in your life? Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. I'm just going to give you a moment. It's your time with God. For some of you, it might have been a year, two, 10, 15 years. I don't know. Maybe God has been calling you to do something, but you just never want to entertain it because maybe you don't think you can. And that's actually a good thing that you believe you can't do it. That's why God might be calling you. I think that's why God calls you because you know you can't do it. And you'll depend upon him. Whatever it might be. Just go to him. 
and say, I will bow down to you, Jesus. I will embrace the mystery now. It's not my job, God. I believe now it's not my job to know the outcome. My job is to trust in you. And will you say, God, you will protect me. I know you will. You'll protect me by being ever-present with me no matter what happens to me. So now I'll take that step. And no matter what happens, that I'll never forget how lovable I am to you, that you sent Jesus Christ to die for me on the cross and resurrect from the dead. So because of that, I will say yes. And no matter what I go through in my life because of the gospel, because you do say i got to pick up my cross and follow you, you understand. And in that solidarity, there's so much love and hope and healing that can be experienced. So will you give yourself all to Jesus right now? That's my challenge to you. Go to him. Commit yourself to him. I'm just going to give you a couple minutes to do that, and I'm going to close this in prayer. For some of you, you actually need to meet with someone this week and talk, maybe for prayer, for spiritual guidance and direction, because there's something heavy in your heart right now and, and uh, something that maybe you're sensing God has been calling you to do for a long time, but you just haven't been able to do it. And you just need some encouragement. That's what the body of Christ is here for, to encourage you, and I hope you'll take that step. Lord, in your darkest hour, in your darkest, darkest hour, you display the beauty of who God is, that you're so powerful. You're so protective over us. And you are a God who has drank the cup of suffering because of how lovable we are in your eyes. And because of that, no matter what we go through in life, you understand what we're going through. And there is a deep sense of empathy there. And that brings healing in and of itself to know that we have a God who understands, a God who's been through everything himself. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to surrender ourselves to you. And all those who've committed themselves to you, God, I pray that you would seal this decision right now by the power of your Holy Spirit. And that your power would be there, your protection will be there. And, God, that your presence will be there to help them through it all. And, God, that you would help us to take a step out and to allow our faith to truly blossom and grow and that our lives would be faith-driven, not fear-driven, but faith-driven. And so would you bless this church. Do the thing that you want to do here at Metro. Holy Spirit, we long for your revival to come and break out in this community, and I pray that it would. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.